Welcome to the Hope in the Hard Times sermon series. I preached this series of messages back in 2012 at the Metropolitan Bible Church, shortly after I had gone through treatments for cancer. Now in 2020, as we face hard times related to the coronavirus, we at Heritage College and Seminary are re-releasing the sermon set, along with a companion study guide. As you dig deeper into God's Word, you will receive hope in the hard times. Last February, right after I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, my wife Linda and I made a trip out to the West Coast to see our families. And uh, we flew into Vancouver and rented a car and drove down to Linden, Washington, where we saw Linda's mother and her siblings, had a good time with them. And then we drove a little further down the coast to Portland, Oregon, where my mom and dad live and my sisters were there. And then we drove another 700 miles south to the Bay Area of California to go to the place that is my favorite place on the planet, a place called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a Christian conference center that is nestled among giant redwood trees in the Santa Cruz Mountains about 10 miles from the Pacific Ocean. Beautiful place. And over the years, in fact, over my lifetime, I can trace many spiritual decisions and many significant moments to Mount Hermon. I was there when things happened and God touched my heart. So Linda and I felt that this would be a good place for us to go at this time of crises and just be still and rest and reflect and pray. As we drove down to, uh, to go to Mount Hermon, we drove to a cabin that Linda had called ahead and booked. She had called and they had hooked us up to a family that rents out their cabin. And uh, as we got closer, she told me that we are renting a, a cabin from a family by the name of the Mungers. In fact, the woman she had spoken to said that the cabin had been built many years ago by her father, who was now in heaven, a man named Robert Munger, who had been a pastor. And that name kind of rung a bell for me. And I said, Robert Munger, I, I remember many, many years ago reading a little booklet called My Heart Christ's Home that was written by a guy named Robert Munger. So we wondered if this could possibly be the same Robert Munger that wrote that little booklet. When we got to the cabin, we were in for a double treat. For one thing, we found that the cabin was situated on the top of this tree-lined ridge, and we had this glorious view of the valley below. It's just stunning. And the second treat was that as we walked down the hallways, there prominently displayed in one of the hallways was a large plaque commemorating the publication of the little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home. So this indeed was the Robert Munger who had written that booklet. Now, just in case you're not familiar with this little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, it was actually written by Dr. Munger back in the 50s. And uh, since that time, it's been printed over 10 million times, 10 million copies in print, been translated into 16 languages. It's gone around the world. And in this booklet, Dr. Munger compares our heart to a home, a home in which Christ comes to live when we trust in him. And he talks in the booklet about how when Christ comes into someone's life, as it were, he moves into every room of our heart. He wants to fill it all. He wants to live in us, and he wants to live through us. Now, that very simple and yet profound truth is central to the Christian faith. 
In fact, that truth of Christ living in us and through us is the heart of the new covenant. But get this, it's not just the heart of the new covenant. It is also the truth that can help you get through the hardest of times. We've just launched into a series here at the Met called Hope in the Hard Times. And we're looking at passages in the Old Testament and New Testament that point us in the direction of hope. Last week, we looked at a passage that points us down the long road towards hope. But today, we're going to look at a passage that reminds us that hope is also close to home. It's close to home if Christ has come and made his home in your heart. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now, now this idea of Christ living in us and through us is not something that uh, Robert Munger dreamed up. It's actually something that comes straight from the, the lips and the teaching of Jesus. And it's something that was reinforced and echoed by the Apostle Paul. So this morning, what we're going to do is look at, look at a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul tells you how this one truth of Christ living in us and through us, this one truth revolutionized his life, how this one truth shaped him in a very profound, powerful, permanent, and personal way. This morning, we're going to find a truth that can help us at any time, but I have found it's a truth that can especially help you in the hard times. So if you're interested in that like I am, why don't you take a Bible and join me at a passage where Paul talks about how this truth changed him and how it can change us. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. I want to talk to you today about my heart, Christ's home, and find out how this simple truth of Christ living in us and through us is the truth that sustains us in the hardest of times. So Galatians chapter 2 will be in verses 19 to 21. And if you need a Bible, we have some here at the church, some blue Bibles, hopefully in front of you or nearby. And it's page 824, 824 if you take one of the blue Bibles. Make sure you have your own copy so you can look at it together. And let's talk about my heart, Christ's home. But before we do, let's invite the Lord Jesus by his spirit to work in each of us, okay? Father, this morning, I pray that you would settle us. I know that we're not on a beautiful tree-lined ridge at Mount Hermon where we just see your glory displayed all around. But Lord, we don't need that to meet with you. We can meet with you right here, wherever we are. And I'm asking that you would come by your spirit and speak personally, pointedly to each one of us. Remind us or show us what it means for you to live in us and through us in the hardest of times. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses that we will look at today, verses 19 through 21, actually are part of a conversation a rather difficult conversation. Originally, these verses are kind of a recording of a conversation that was rather painful. It was a conversation that took place between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And in a sense, it was a conversation that was actually more of a confrontation. I know that because back in verse 11, where this section starts, we read of the problem. We look back at verse 11, and you'll see the setting, the backstory for these verses. Verse 11, it says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul is writing here. 
Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, what happened was basically this. The apostle Peter came from Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem, which was the first church, came from that church and he traveled to the region that they called Galatia, Asia Minor. We would know it today as modern day Turkey. And he went to visit some of the new churches in Galatia. Well, you need to know something about these two settings. Jerusalem was a church made up almost exclusively of Christians from a Jewish background. Most of the Christians there were Jewish culturally and religiously, and then they had come to faith in Christ. But in Galatia, it was made up of churches of people who were from a Gentile background. At least many of them were. Perhaps most of them were. So when Peter came as a Jewish believer in Christ, he comes to these churches and immediately he meets with these Gentile Christians and he begins to hang out with them and he has meals with them and it's all is great until some other Christians from Jerusalem who were also Jewish in background came to see Peter and the folks in Galatia. And when they came, Peter got skittish and he started to change. He started to pull away from eating with the Gentiles, even though they were Christians. The reason he pulled away is because he didn't want to get grief from the folks who had come from Jerusalem. You see, at this time, many of the Christians who were from a Jewish background still had scruples. They thought it wasn't kosher to eat with Gentiles. And Peter didn't want to offend them, and so he kind of didn't know what to do, so he pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. Paul saw this, and he got agitated. You see, Paul realized that it wasn't just that Peter was being kind of rude. This was way more important than that. Paul understood that Peter was subtly denying the truth of the gospel. Peter was subtly implying that faith in Jesus wasn't enough, that you also had to live under the dictates and directives of the Mosaic law. So Paul, in front of everybody, has a public confrontation with Peter. He calls him out. And as he calls him out, Paul tells his own story because Paul was also from a Jewish background. And he begins to tell Peter his own story. And as he does, he explains what is the heart of the Christian faith. So now we come to our verses. Look with me at verse 19. You'll see what I'm, what I'm saying. Verse 19, Paul speaking here, says this. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In those verses, Paul gets at the heart of the Christian faith. And the heart of the Christian faith has to do with your heart. This morning, I want to show you a couple truths that revolutionized Paul's life. And Paul thought they were so critical that he was willing to stand down the Apostle Peter in public because he thought, we cannot, we cannot lose sight of these important truths. And these truths are ones you need anytime. But I found out these are ones you especially need in the hard times. The first thing I want you to see comes out of verse 19. Paul is going to talk about what it means now to live for God. And the first thing that he says, verse 19, is this. Living for God takes dying to the law. If you're going to live for God, there has to be a death. 
and it's a death to the law. Living for God takes dying to the law. Now, look at verse 19. You'll see how he says that. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. In other words, if you want to live for God, some of you thinking, I want to live for God. Okay, then you have to die to the law, right? Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, you may hear that, and that may not sound very revolutionary to you. You may think, well, what's new about that? That's what, what's big about that? Well, let me assure you, in Paul's day, that was earth-shattering news. You see, in Paul's day, in that first century, people thought that if you wanted to get right with God, you had to get under the law. In fact, for almost 3,500 years, since the time of Moses, since the time that God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, remember that? Since that time, if you wanted to live for God, you needed to follow the commands and the instructions that were given in the Mosaic law. Whether you were a Jewish or Gentile, you had to go by that. Now, don't misunderstand. Even under the Old Testament and under the Mosaic law, salvation was still by grace and through faith. It's always been that way. The only way that you are saved is by grace and through faith. But in the Old Testament days, the way you showed your faith, the way you showed you really believed was that you would say, well, I believed in God. What was he want me to do now? Well, he wants you to follow the laws given to Moses. So for 3,500 years, from Moses till the time of Jesus, if you were a person who wanted to live for God, you lived under the law. And that, my friends, would change everything in your life. It would change what you ate. It would change what you wore. It would change who you hung with. It would change everything. A couple years ago, there was a best-selling book that was called a year of living biblically. It kind of hit the charts. It was kind of a novelty type book. It was written by a guy named A.J. Jacobs, who describes himself as a secular Jew. But for a year, Mr. Jacobs tried to live according to all the many rules given to Moses under the Mosaic law. And he writes his story in kind of a humorous way, all these things he tried to do. And you know what he found out? He found out, I think he's living in some place like New York or Chicago, some big city, working downtown. He found out it was really hard. It was daunting to try to live under the directives of the Mosaic law. But for 3,500 years from Moses till Jesus, if you wanted to live for God, that's what you needed to do. But Jesus changed all that. Jesus changed all that. You see, Jesus, by his life, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. He was the embodiment of it. He kept it perfectly. By his life, he fulfilled the Mosaic law. And get this, by his death, he instituted the promised new covenant. You remember on the night that he was going to be betrayed, he said, take this bread, take this cup. This is the new covenant. He started a new covenant which would replace and supersede the old covenant. And now, since Jesus, if you want to live for God, you don't have to come under all the dictates of the Mosaic law. You come through Christ. Now, Paul was clear on this, so much so that when Peter seemed to be saying, well, I can't eat with you Gentiles anymore because the law isn't for that, Paul steps in and goes, wait, wait, Peter, you're missing it. Remember, 
Remember, we died to the law. Did you see that in verse 19? That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Look at, look at how he says it. For through the law, I died to the law. That may be a bit confusing. So let me unpackage that a little bit more. What is Paul saying here? Start with the phrase, through the law. Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean, through the law, I died to the law? Well, I think the little phrase, through the law, is shorthand for through the penalty demanded by the law. Through the penalty that the law prescribed for sin. So through the law means through the through receiving the penalty that the law demands for those who sin. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think the penalty was for sin under the Mosaic law? It was really clear, wasn't it? It was death. All the sacrifices, remember when they would bring the animal sacrifices? Why did they do that? Because God was saying, whenever somebody sins, something is going to die. The Old Testament said, the soul that sins, it will die. New Testament, Paul echoes that, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? So under the law, the penalty of the law for breaking God's law was death. Paul said, I received that penalty. Through the law, I received the penalty, which was death. Now you may say, wait a second, how did Paul experience the death penalty since he's still alive? Well, Paul tells you in verse 20, he was crucified. That's how he experienced the death penalty. He was crucified. You see it in verse 20? Look at it. For I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul is telling you there, he's saying, you know, I died to the law because I was crucified with Christ. He explains it in greater detail in Romans chapter 6. And essentially what he says is this, when a person trusts in Jesus, they are so closely united to Jesus in God's eyes that, get this, God sees Jesus' death as their death. Like, they're so linked to Jesus that since he died, well, then they died. And they, as it were, were crucified with Christ. Now, why did Jesus die? Well, he died to pay the penalty of sins. So Paul says, since I died with Jesus, that means I received the penalty of sins. I died. So through the law means I received the penalty that the law demands, which is death. Okay? So in verse 19, that's our first phrase, for through the law. But then he goes on to say, I didn't just die through the law, I died to the law. Look at that. For through the law, I died to the law. What do you think it means to die to the law? Well, Paul explains this in greater detail in Romans chapter 7. And essentially, here's the, here's the picture that he gives. This will help. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful metaphor. Paul says it's kind of like a marriage. He said before Jesus, it was like we were married to the law. It was like our spouse. And that marriage was to last till death do us part. But since I died with Christ, I died to the law. And I have been separated or parted or freed from the covenant that I had with the law. And the reason all this happened, Paul said, was not so that I could just go my merry way and live like I want. The reason that through the law, I died to the law was so that, look at the last phrase in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. 
Paul's saying, listen, if you really want to live for God, you need to get clear on this. You need to be linked with Jesus so that through the law and through your union with Jesus, you die to the law. Now, you may be listening to all this and going, you know, this is like theological high speak, and I, I don't know if I fully get it, but here's the, the good news for me. I don't try to live under the law, so this is not a problem for me. And I would say, not so fast. We humans are incurably drawn to a law mentality. See, living under law doesn't just mean you, you get out the Old Testament and try to figure out what the stipulations were in the Old Covenant. You know how you can tell if you're living under law? Look at verse 21. There's a little hint. Look at verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Here's the tip. If you think that you can gain righteousness with God by keeping some rules, you are living under law. If you think that ultimately it comes down to how well you keep some rules, could be your rules, could be a church's rules, could be whoever's rules. If you think that you got to try your best and do your best, and if you do it well enough, you kind of get this do-it-yourself righteousness. If that's what you think in your heart, you're living under law. And you know what I found? That for some people, when they hit hard times, some people under hard times even go further this way. Here's their thinking. Well, life was going pretty good, but now, it's, now life is going terribly. Maybe God is not happy with me. So I know what I'll do. I'll redouble my efforts. I will live more righteously. I'll try harder. Paul says, wait, wait, that's not it. Through the law, I died to the law. That's not the way you get righteous with God. That's not the heart of the Christian faith. Well, you say, well, what is? Well, that brings us to the second thing that you want to see. It comes out of verse 20. Paul says in verse 19 that living for God takes dying to the law. Now he starts to get to the essence of the Christian faith. And what he tells you in verse 20 is this. Living for God takes Christ living in you. It takes Christ living in you. If you're going to live for God, you have to have Christ living in you. Look at verse 20. You'll see it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Paul says, I am so linked to Jesus that I, it's, it's almost like my old life died. Like who I was, somehow I'm not that guy anymore. And I'm a new person, and in this new person, I'm not all by myself because Christ now lives in me. Now that is the heart of the new covenant. Jesus, by his spirit, comes to live in the life of a believer. And there is this new union between your spirit and God's spirit. It's so close. It is so tight. Christ living in you, this union with Christ, that Paul, again, resorts to the picture of a marriage to describe it. Remember I said in Romans 7, he said, you used to be married to the law, but then you died. And it's like you're no longer married to the law. But listen to what he says in Romans 7, verse 4. He goes on to explain how it works. He says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Catch this, so that you might belong to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He says, it's like you are now married to Christ. You're united to him. There is a union between you that is closer than, well, only maybe marriage can picture it, he says. 
So Paul is telling you, and he's telling Peter, he says, Peter, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Now, that idea of Christ living in us is actually something Jesus promised. Jesus said that would be the case. Listen to these words I'm reading from John chapter 14 and verse 23. Listen to this. This is the words of Jesus, John 14, 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. We will move in. We will be united with him. You know, I, I said it's kind of like this marriage picture. If you've been to a wedding, you've often seen that picture of uh, lived out where they do the unity candle, the, the bride and groom, right? They stand there and they each take a candle and they bring the two flames together and light it in one flame. Now, there's still two people, but what they're symbolizing is their life is no longer just two separate people. There is a joining. They are moving their lives together. And Paul says, that's what's happened to me. And Jesus promised it would be the case. Jesus promised to move in if we trusted in him. Now, that idea of Jesus moving in is what led Robert Munger to write the little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home. In this little booklet, he, he talks about the day he invited Jesus into his life. It's kind of a beautiful little picture. Listen to what he says. Just read you a snippet from it. He says, I will never forget the evening I invited him into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not spectacular, emotional, but very real, occurring in the very center of my soul. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness and harmony where there had been discord. He filled the emptiness with his own loving fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will. So Dr. Munger says, there was a time in my life I welcomed Jesus in. I believed in him. And I said, Lord, come, live in me. And then in the rest of the book, what he does is he pictures showing Jesus around the house, showing Jesus around his heart. And he pictures his heart as having these different rooms. So, for example, he takes Jesus into the study, which he says is like his mind. And they look at what the books are there and the magazines and what's on the wall. And suddenly he says, I, I felt uncomfortable. I used to just come in here and these magazines I read and these books I had didn't bother me. But now with Jesus standing there, some of them all of a sudden made me feel like, you know, I, I don't know that Jesus would be real happy with that one. And he said, Jesus, would you help me kind of clean this place up? And then they go to the, the dining room, which he says represents his appetites. And they go to the workroom and the rec room and the bedroom. And one of the favorite stops is at the living room. And Dr. Munger describes the living room as this cozy kind of, uh, you know, fireplace room. And Jesus walks in and loves this room and says to him, this is a nice room. Why don't you and I meet here often? And what he begins to talk about, what Munger talks about, is the fact that when Jesus moves in, catch this, he wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to be close to you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to enjoy his presence. Listen to how Dr. Munger describes it. He says, well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than to have a few minutes alone with Christ in close companionship. He promised, I will be here every morning. Meet me here and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, I would go downstairs to the living room. 
He would take a book of the Bible off the bookcase and he would open it and we would read it together. He would unfold to me the wonder of God's saving truth recorded on its pages and make my heart sing as he shared all he had done for me and all he would be to me. Those times together were wonderful. Through the Bible and through his Holy Spirit, he would talk to me. In prayer, I would respond. So our friendship deepened in these quiet times of personal conversation. Now, catch what he writes next. He says, however, under the pressure of my many responsibilities, little by little, this time began to be shortened. Why? I'm not sure. Somehow I assumed I was just too busy to give special, regular time to be with Christ. This was not a deliberate decision, you understand. It just seemed to happen that way. Eventually, not only was the period shortened, but I began to miss days now and then, such as during midterms or finals. Matters of urgency demanding my attention were continually crowding out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. Often I'd miss two days or more in a row. One morning, I recall rushing down the steps in a hurry to be on my way to an important assignment. As I passed the living room, the door was open. Glancing in, I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, it came to me. He's my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as my savior and friend to live with me, yet here I am neglecting him. I stopped and I turned and hesitantly went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Master, I'm sorry. Have you been here every morning? Yes, he said. I told you I would be here to meet with you. I was even more ashamed. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness, and I asked him to forgive me, and he did, as he always does when we acknowledge our failures. He said, the trouble is that you have been thinking of the quiet time of Bible study and prayer as a means for your own spiritual growth. This is true, but you have forgotten that this time also means something to me. Remember, I love you. At a great cost, I have redeemed you. I value your fellowship. Just to have you look up into my face warms my heart. Don't neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whether or not you want to be with me, remember, I want to be with you. I really love you. You know, Dr. Munger writes, the truth that Christ wants my fellowship, that he loves me and wants to be with me, has done more to transform thy quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find a time and place with the word of God and in prayer that you may be together with him. See, when Christ comes to live in you, he wants to be close to you. He wants to have communion out of the union. You know, when I was reading this little booklet sitting in Dr. Munger's cabin at Mount Hermon, I was convicted by that. Because you know what I realized? I realized that over the past months, I had been the guy that was busy rushing by the door. Oh, I had spent time with Jesus every morning, but sometimes I just was kind of thinking, Jesus, can we make this quick? Because I got a lot to do today. I was treating it as if it was some luxury that I didn't have a time for when it's the central truth came in to be with me. And you know what I realized? Sometimes God will use hard times to drive us back to our relationship with him. Right? Suddenly we start going, all these other things I was so busy about, they don't matter as much. I need you. 
I need to be close to you. And the beautiful thing is that in our hardest times, Jesus moves in closer to us. We recently got an email from Ajith Fernando. Ajith is a missionary statesman from Sri Lanka, and he'll be with us for our missions conference, we hope. But what struck me in his emails, he told us that his wife, Nellan, has just been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's gone through surgery and now is in for more treatments. And listen to what Ajith had to say in his email about this. This is fascinating to me. He said this, These days, Nellan and I are having a deep sense of union with Jesus. Let me read that again. These days, like the cancer days, these days, Nellan and I are having a deep sense of union with Jesus. We are sensing much sweetness in our joy in Christ amidst the pain. When Jesus comes to us and comforts us in times of deep distress, our joy is tinged with a unique and tender sweetness. How wonderful it is to have a God who is closest to us when we suffer. Listen, if you're going through hard times, I don't pretend to know all the reasons, but I can tell you one of the reasons. Why does God allow us to go through hard times? Because he wants the pressure to squeeze us closer to him. He wants us to come back to the place where we go, you know, I'm doing a million things, but the one thing is really necessary. And that is to enjoy communion with you. You came to live in me. See, living for God means you got to remember that Christ is living in you. But there's one final thing you have to remember, because Paul doesn't finish there. It's not just that Christ comes to live in you. The other part of this whole equation is that he comes to live through you by faith. In fact, the third thing I want you to see from verse 20 in our text is simply this. See, living for God takes dying to the law. That's right. We give up on the old trying to earn our righteousness. Living for God takes Christ living in us. And then finally, living for Christ, living for God takes living by faith. It takes living by faith. Because that's what Paul says. If you're going to live this out day by day, it will take faith. Look at verse 20 one more time. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now catch this. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, here's the deal. Christianity is a life of faith. It starts by faith. When you trust in Christ by faith, he moves into your heart. But Christianity is sustained by faith. It doesn't just start by faith. It's sustained by faith. Because as you keep trusting him, he doesn't just live in you, he lives through you. I got a beautiful picture of this sitting in Dr. Munger's cabin at Mount Hermon. I was reading another book that he wrote called Leading from the Heart. And in this book, he talks about himself and he compares himself to an old beaten up work glove. And uh, as I was sitting there in his living room reading this, I looked over and by the fireplace, there were a couple of Dr. Munger's gloves hanging off the, uh, you know, the pokers and all the stuff where you clean up the fireplace. And I thought, I wonder if, if those gloves happened to be the ones that he was talking about. And then this is what he said. He said, you know, we're kind of like an old beat-up work glove. By ourselves, we really can't do much. And then he says, but when that glove is filled with a powerful hand, suddenly it can do things that it never could do on its own. Now, we are not as passive as this glove right? We're, at, we're living. Paul says, I live in the body. But like this glove, we can't do anything of spiritual significance unless Christ is living through us. And the way that we experience him living through us is by faith. By faith. 
We actively, again and again, invite Jesus who lives in us to live through us. Here's how it might look. You have a difficult conversation in the office. You know you've been dreading it. You got to have it. And you don't want it. So what do you do? You pull away a few minutes and you say, Jesus, you know I'm not good at this stuff. And if it was up to me, I would run and never do this. But I need to do this. So would you live through me right now? Would you speak through me? Would you give me your courage? Would you give me your compassion? Let your life come through me in this conversation. Or maybe you go home and you're at a season where you and your spouse are not on good, good terms and you don't feel any love. And yet you know you're commanded to love. So what do you do? You say to Jesus, Jesus, you live in me and right now my little reservoir of love is dry. But you have a limitless supply of love. Would you love my spouse through me? And then by faith you step into it and you believe he's going to provide. You're struggling with a sin issue in your life. You can't seem to get victory. You've fallen again and again. You've tried hard. So what do you do? You go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you know that I can't seem to do this. I try. My willpower is not enough. I need you to live your life through me in this challenge. Jesus, be my purity. Would you live through me? Or in the middle of a hard time, you're facing issues that are crushing you. What do you do? You say, Jesus, I, I can't face this. I don't have the strength. But you live in me and I need you to live through me. Please be my strength. And then by faith, you step forward. You live by faith. See, the heart of the Christian life is remembering that Jesus lives in you by faith and he lives through you by faith and doing that again and again and again. And Paul says, if you want to live for God, that's how you live. And then to sum it all up, he says, and the reason you know that you can trust a God to give him your whole life, to invite him in and tell him to live through you, is because he loves you. Did you see how the, sermon, the, the verse ended in verse 20? Look at how it ends, verse 20. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why should you trust Jesus to move into your life, to remodel it all, and to live through you? Why should you trust him with that much control of your life? It's because nobody loves you like he loves you. And Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. He is God the Son, but he loved me. I love how personal Paul is. He says, he loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the whole world, which he did. Paul says he also died for my sins, and he gave himself for me. And he doesn't just love the whole world, which he does. He loves me. And he showed his love most clearly on the cross. And because he loves me like that, I welcome him into my life, and I say, live in me and live through me. Up at Dr. Munger's cabin, about a 10-minute hike from his cabin, there was another ridge. And on this ridge was probably a, I don't know, 15, 18-foot cross. Several times during the week that Linda and I were there, we would walk to this cross. Sometimes I'd go by myself, and I'd just stand there and look up at it. Pour out my heart to God. Lord, this is what I'm going through. It's not an easy time. Then I'd look at the cross and remember what he went through for me. The last day that we were there, we took some bread and some juice, and we went up there, and we had our own little communion service of the two of us. I said, Lord, I don't know how this is all going to play out, 
but I trust you. And I trust you because you have shown yourself to be a God who loves and who sacrificed and suffered. So come live in us, come live through us in the good times and in the hard times. Listen, if you're here today and you've never opened the door of your heart to Jesus, you've, you, maybe you're quasi-religious, maybe you're a churchgoer, but you've never, you know it, you've never invited him to come in, move in, take residence, be your Lord, be your Savior. If you've never done that, can I invite you today to invite Jesus into your life? Simple prayer, heartfelt prayer, trusting him to forgive you and to invade your life. You will never be the same. You can do that today. And then if you're here and Jesus is living in you, my challenge to you is, will you ask him to live through you? Will you live trusting in him? Then even your hard times will never be the same. We're going to invite our worship team to come, and Linda's going to come. We're going to sing you a song and ask you to sing it with us. But first, let's pray. Just take a moment. I want to just lead you through a simple prayer. If you've never asked Jesus in your life, if you've never invited him to be your Savior, you might want to pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I need you, and I invite you to come in. Come in and clean me up. Forgive my sins. Make my heart your home. I trust in you. I give myself to you because you loved me first. If you're here today and you, you do know Christ, why don't you take a moment and invite him to live through you in the areas that right now are pressing against you. Why don't you tell him that? And then we'll sing together. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about online courses at Heritage College and Seminary, visit our website at discoverheritage.ca or visit our personal website at rickandlindareed.com.